Hi there! You're about to listen to a vintage episode of the Under the Microscope podcast. While the content is still as relevant and as interesting as when it was recorded, our webpage has changed. You can now find us at thesciencetalk.com slash real-scientist-nano. Welcome to Under the Microscope. This series is brought to you by the Real Scientists Nano team. Our goal is to provide a platform where scientists can communicate their work and interact with the public. With that in mind, every week we introduce you to a scientist working in the field of materials and nanoscience. Craig Bunt, who is an associate professor at Lincoln University in New Zealand. Hi, Craig. How are you doing? Hello. Good. Good. Thank you. Hope you're well. I'm well. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Um, let's start with uh, understanding your scientific journey so far. So, how did you end up in your current research field? Um, if we go all the way back to when I was 15, I went to a careers night. There was a presentation from a pharmacist. So I was in middle high school. Um, and I thought pharmacy sounded really interesting. So I had pharmacy in mind. I completed my high school with mostly science papers. And so went on to university for pre-pharmacy and completed a, a pharmacy degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, partway through my pharmacy degree, I had a series of summer studentships, summer research Uh, positions that piqued my interest more in pharmaceutics than the pharmacy profession, the healthcare profession. So uh, instead of becoming a registered pharmacist, I stayed on at university and went into a PhD and did my PhD in in pharmaceutics, uh, looking at um, microencapsulation for vaccines. Uh, New Zealand, a small country with uh, not a particularly large pharmaceutical industry, certainly not a large pharmaceutical research industry. Um, at that time, 4 million people. Um, But the joke is 60 million sheep. That's actually less than that. But we have a very large veterinary pharmaceutical industry. So um, when I finished my PhD, I went and worked for a veterinary pharmaceutical company on controlled release inserts for estrus control, estrus synchrony. So uh, timing when an animal uh, can be inseminated or would breed or for out-of-season breeding. So it's used as a farm management tool. And I fell on my feet there. It was uh, a company that was reformulating its product for the US market. Um, So I was on the team doing that. We patented what we were doing. So from a pure research PhD into industry, taking something to the US market, patenting, um, we were the first New Zealand company to achieve US uh, FDA registration for a pharmaceutical, veterinary or human. Um, this is 15 years ago now. Um, and that was just an amazing of uh, 10 years of my life. Um, just uh, and, and an amazing company director who just said to the scientists, you do science. You know, the, 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 he followed the hard trained capable people and let them do their job don't tell them how to do their job and and it was it was wonderful um 
the nature of business is that uh, things change. So the research company became uh, less active as its technologies were uh, licensed off to large companies, Pfizer, Pharmacia, and the likes. So uh, I moved on to uh, academia, uh, taught pharmaceutics at Auckland University. Um, because up until that point, uh, out of my PhD, I'd only ever worked for a small company, a team of four or five around, a few student interns and things like that. And I thought, let's get some experience in a, in a large institute. And so New Zealand's large institutes are either retail, construction or um, universities. And I was there for two years. That was amazing. Um, <laughs> I arrived in January and started teaching in February the, the least favoured course by pharmacy students, <laughs> which, 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 which was pharmaceutics, ironically. Um, but most, of the, most pharmacists aren't pharmaceutical scientists. So. Um, but I brought in a lot of my industry knowledge and experience and, and hopefully some of the excitement. And so I turned the course around from the least preferred to one with no issues. Well, that, that's all you could hope for. Um, but it, it, was, it was an amazing two years there. Then an opportunity came up to join a government research institute um, and back uh, to doing some sort of research associated with what I'd done a bit of my PhD on and microencapsulation of bacteria for vaccines. But the job with the government research institute was taking bacteria and formulating for them for um, green agrochemicals. So bacteria to control plant pests, bacteria to control um, pest insects and things like that. So um, alternatives to agrochemicals. Uh, I was there for four years leading a team to do that. Okay. And then uh, another opportunity came up to go to academia, um, okay. literally across the road from where I was to, to go to Lincoln University. Yeah. Uh, um, it was, I remember at the time, $52 more a year. So I had a price, evidently, that would convince me to move one dollar a week. <laughs> so I, I just remember it as quite a, a quite ironic that I was going from one job to the other across the road, and I was gaining one dollar a week. And I use that to illustrate that um, you know you shouldn't always be changing jobs just to chase the money. Um, if if the money is hard, what you're on, and you can't live, and and it's a struggle, you're going to need to move. But, but sometimes job changes have nothing to do with money. They, they have a lot to do with where you need to be and want to be. Sure. And I'd been in government research and I'd been in private industry and I'd been in academia before. So I went back to academia knowing of the three that that's the environment I like to be in most. Okay. So that was nine years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so here I am having gone through all of these career changes with a background in biomedical pharmacy. Uh, at an agricultural college. What am I doing? So I'm teaching physiology to animal scientists at the undergraduate level. Where am I going to um, take my research? And I was a little bit like a, a kid in a candy shop. There's lots of opportunities for formulation science. science. I'm ultimately a formulation scientist. Um, you give me a piece of candy or a tablet, I'm looking at it and going, well, how was this constructed? And, you know, what's it going to do once we take it? Mm -hmm. So whether I'm formulating a tablet or a fertilizer granule or um, hand sanitizer in our current environment, 
um, or a spray-on gel to control a pest on a plant. The formulation science is all the same, mm-hmm. which is why my research now seems so varied from 3D printing to nanofibers for ocular drug delivery for fertilizer, which does not sound all that exciting. But when you think of the need, yeah. So I actually, in some ways, dealing with the, the human body is so much easier. It goes in, we can model where it's going to come out and things go along pretty much um, predictable pathways because the human body is always trying to maintain homeostasis and that we know how it should be and when it's abnormal, what constitutes abnormal. I was in, in a, doing a bit of field work a few months ago and we're standing there in the middle of a drought and my grad student, no postdoc, looks around and goes, but this could all be different next week. And I go, yes. And so what's happening this week? And I go, very little. The ground's so dry, nothing's happening. What if it rains and floods next week? I said, totally different. We'll have no idea what our material is going to do from one week to the next. Sure. Where if we put it in a human body, 37 degrees, pH 7.4s, and enzymes and macrophages. Yep. Standard. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So in agriculture, usually you have to do something three times, not for replication necessarily, but just to find three vastly different conditions to to know really what the limits are. so yeah, it's my research field, my, my how I've, I've got to where I am. Um, okay, that's yeah. quite an interesting journey you've had. That's a really, really interesting stat. And it's really interesting that you also worked at a private company, a government institution, and then you came back to academia because that's where you thought you belonged. Um, where and how does your current research uh, fit in this big puzzle of materials or nanoscience? So agricultural chemicals um, products Mm -hmm. have been around uh, not for necessarily a long time, but they certainly um, burst on the scene more and more with the green revolution of the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of the products you would see a farmer spread on their paddock now, give to their animals, were developed back in the 30s to the 50s, maybe 60s. And they're old technology. Um, they're robust in that they can be transported and manufactured easily and put in the back of a spreader and put out there. But they have a lot of inefficiencies, um, a lot of dust, um, a, a high degree of so-called fail rate amongst. So, so if you have a whole beaker of granules, maybe 10, 20% of them actually have all cracked and ground and don't actually perform as you would like them all to, but it doesn't really matter because on the average in the whole beaker full of material, it'll still do the right job. Well, there's a lot of inefficiency in there and there's a lot of waste and that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So there's um, the need to take old technologies and make them better. And we can't make them better by still making them the same way out of the same materials, just putting another layer of something on. We, we need to do it a different way. Mm-hmm. We have the same issue in biomedical science as well. We have a molecule that needs to be in a certain part of the body. There's no point delivering it to other parts, um, or there is a molecule that's difficult to get to the right part of the body. 
Um, so we've got an efficiency delivery challenge there as well. And so we, how we package, whether it's a bioactive drug or we package a fertilizer molecule so that we can administer it and deliver it requires um, the field of material science, formulation science. So right. taking a pile of active and transforming that into something that can be used and, and do its task. So it's the chemical engineering of that and the material science of being able to select new ways to do that because um, the old ways, a lot of them have, are exhausted. What I find really interesting is a lot of the, the bioactive molecules, there's, there's old ones that we know really well, what they can do, how they do it, where they go. But if we can use them better, we actually probably have something far better than a whole new molecule. And what I'm saying there is, if we take a whole new molecule, we don't know what it does in the environment, what it does in the body. Mm -hmm. um, so even if we deliver it wonderfully, we may find other things are a problem. Yeah, if we take an old molecule that we know it has limits because it washes away too fast or doesn't dissolve fast enough or, or whatever reason, but then make that hang around long or go quicker, then we still know what the downstream consequences are or, or we can manage them and accept them. So material science, formulation science also enables you to develop um, or extend the capabilities of molecule, extend its, its um, product portfolio. Um, the story I often remember is Pfizer's very first blockbuster wasn't a new drug. It was taking an old, well-established drug that you used to have to give four times a day and putting that in a tablet where you only had to give it once a day. And yeah. that's convenient, but also at the same time, they found that it had other health benefits. Mm -hmm. And they already knew this molecule, is, how, how mm -hmm. uh, any problems or how, how wonderful it worked, but they actually made it work better, not by creating a new molecule, but by a better formulation. So mm -hmm. modifying um, the known molecule and making it better Instead of starting from square one, you start with the existing yep. uh, molecule and then make it better and fix the problems that you know and not yep. create new problems by going down a different path altogether with a completely new molecule. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's also yep. cool that the material science is the material. The material is what is the is that's the commonality. Be it agriculture, be it biomedical. Uh, or pharmaceutical sciences. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's also really. That's, uh, I think that's a very good description of what what where your research falls in this, this big puzzle of materials or nanoscience. Um, so it sounds that it, it sounds to me like you do a lot of interesting experiments uh, and field works. Um, and if you have to pick one research project, uh, a quirky one or a fun one or the one that you're most proud of. Uh, I know it's very difficult because you do so many interesting um, research projects. Uh, could you pick one and explain it to us in simple words in the section we call uh, In Other Words? Um, so this is going to be controversial to many people. Okay. Um, but I'd, I'd like to give a bit of background first. So in New Zealand, we were colonized by Europe 200 years ago. Uh, before mm -hmm. that, we had the indigenous Polynesian people, the Maori, had been here for uh, 1,700 years, maybe a little longer. Mm -hmm. uh, they brought with them uh, the Polynesian rat and uh, the dog. Um, 
but we and that was about the only animals they brought with them and some plants from the Pacific Islands. Um, so by the time the Europeans came here, there's this unique flora and fauna in New Zealand of plants and animals, birds, um, birds mostly. Um, the only mammals prior to European settlement were humans, dogs, the introduced Polynesian rat and two small bats. That was it. No land mammals. No foxes, no bison, no wildebeest, no giraffes, no, no Norwegian rats, no ship rats, no mice, no, no mammals. Um, the Europeans bring in a whole series of different animals for different reasons. Um, but they brought in the, the rabbit to um, make New Zealand look like England and have provide a source of meat. Um, they brought in the sheep and then they brought in game animals, deer and chamois and tar and pigs and um, uh, the possum. Uh, North America, there's a mammal called the opossum, um, but in Australia, there's um, a marsupial called the possum, uh, a furry animal. It looks a bit like a, a, a vicious, mad squirrel with sharp teeth and claws. Uh, can look quite cute actually. Usually in Australia where it's native, any photographs show it looking very cute and friendly. In New Zealand we don't tend to like those photographs because the millions of them in our forests uh, decimate the bird populations, the, the trees, and so we have a major pest problem in New Zealand of introduced um, pests. Uh, the mustelids, the stoats, the ferrets, rats, mice, the possum, we even have wallaby in New Zealand. Now, Australia has wallaby and kangaroos. We even have wild wallabies in New Zealand. So all these, these pest problems. Um, and so New Zealand has uh, embraced the uh, to be predator-free by 2050 to remove these predators we've introduced and are damaging our ecosystems by 2050. And that will be done through um, a whole range of activities by um, fencing off large, large areas of land and taking the pests out, eradicating them by hunting, by trapping and by poisoning, letting native species um, regroup, repopulate, and then move out across the country and, and remove these pests. Um, and so New Zealand uses uh, a controversial um, mammal control toxin called 1080. We're one of the world's largest users of 1080 for controlling mammalian pests. And um, there is always a need for alternatives to things like 1080. Um, 1080 has a lot of really good characteristics in terms of speed of kill. That's controversial, but in terms of environmental um, residue, it's, it's non-existent. Um, it's quite more specific towards mammals than birds. The, the animals we're trying to protect are birds. And so we have this unique situation in New Zealand. We don't really have native land mammals to protect from 1080. Mm -hmm. And the few examples we do have, the bat, we, we can keep the 1080 away from them quite easily by making a bait that they wouldn't go near. Um, so there's also our use of toxins, but there's also exploring uh, new toxins, more environmentally friendly, more humane, more sustainable. Um, and so some years ago, I was having a conversation with the company looking at trying to develop a new toxin for pig and possum control. 
and they were looking at a compound called sodium um, nitrate and that's the preservative you'll find in processed meat sometimes. Okay. A small amount is a preservative, a large amount is a toxin. Now that's the case with any chemical, salt, water, you know, sugar. Sure. Small sure. amount versus large amount. What's, what's the definition of a, a toxin? Enough of it will kill you. Um, so sodium nitrate, um, it kills by basically sending the body to sleep. Um, it doesn't hang around in the environment. Nit well, nitrates are there anyway. Nitrates are produced by plants. Um, it has an antidote though, for if there's accidental poisoning, there's an antidote available for that. Um, but it's incredibly bitter. So how do you get an animal, a pest animal to eat it? And so the company was looking at coating the granules of this poison with a material to taste mask and they, um, uh, they weren't having very much success. They, they knew they were getting some benefit, but not as much as they needed. Animals could still taste this and then move away from the, um, the bait, the, the toxin. Uh, so I, I just talking with them and, and they said, you know, what could be happening? I said, well, they described their coating process. And I said, well, maybe you're getting cracks in the coating. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, how would we know that? Said, we'll look at it under an SEM. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. And then they say, well, if we find cracks, how would we fix it? And I said, well, maybe you need a plasticizer, something to help the coating material flow over the granule and form a, a, a better, more um, intact coating, one that sort of stretches over rather than... Um, just lies on there so that if it can stretch and flow over it won't have cracks. Mm -hmm. Okay, what sort of plasticizers would be? And I just off the top of my head listed off three or four. Or how much would we put in? So I just gave them a ballpark figure of, you know, one percent by weight. Okay, and, and you know the, the company director's writing down these details and I just thought it was a conversation, you know. Mm -hmm. Once I start talking, getting me to shut up is impossible. <laughs> and um and then two weeks later, the, the, the director contacted me and says, oh, we have some samples now. Can you test them? And I'm, what? And, oh, we've made these samples with this formulation you described. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I hope I'm right. Um, <laughs> so, Were you? And, uh, yes, yes. One of the <laughs> plasticizers and the concentration produced a coating without cracks. Wonderful. And so, yeah. Um, and, and so that formulation then went into registration trials and so it's now used in Australia uh, to control feral pigs. It's registered in New Zealand but not used. Okay. Now this is interesting. The reason it's not used is not because it's unsuitable or anything like that, is that we have existing control programs. We understand the science of really well how to use it, how to use them. And so if you introduce a new compound um, even though it may in trials work effectively, you don't know exactly how you're going to use it um, out in the wild, convincing these wild populations of animals to engage with it. So right. we're still sticking with the science of the known products, um, right. but it's registered for essentially a case in, in an emergency. New Zealand's foot and mouth free. We don't have that here. Um, and so if it was to come into the country, how would we control it? Now we control it in farms where there's sheep and cattle, but the worry would be feral populations of pigs. How would we control it there? We can't hunt them all. Uh, New Zealand's too big with rugorous mountains and, and, and deep bush. Right. So the product is registered in New Zealand in the expect, uh, anticipation that well, what if we needed to control the feral population really quickly? It'd be 
hugely expensive, but we could use it that way. And it's also going through US registration as well. So it's being trialed by the USDA and various sites in um, mm -hmm. the US. And so it's, it's not actually outstanding science, but I like that project because we had the right people talking at the right time for the right situation, this need that needs to be met and, and, a, and a simple solution. Um, and then seeing where that solution ends up in terms of products and trials and, and providing more options. So that, that's the one I'm, I'm most proud of. Mm -hmm. um, I can understand why you're most proud of it because also the turnaround time of two weeks, almost two weeks, uh, at least for the first trial, that's also like, wow, that's, yeah. that's incredible. I can completely understand why you picked, picked this and uh, gave a disclaimer at the beginning that uh, the situation is different in New Zealand. It's not the, it might not mm. be the same in other countries. So, the giving context is uh, often very important. Uh, this, this is, this is very, very good. Um, Craig, let's move a bit to your other parts of your work, which is teaching. Um, do you teach courses? And if you do, which one would you like to mention? Which ones would you like to mention? Yep. So I teach uh, some undergraduate classes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the examiner for one of the courses. I'm the, the lead teacher mm -hmm. uh, for a first year um, foundation paper in animal science. Oh, sorry, in agricultural science. And the paper I teach is animal science. It's essentially mammalian physiology. And then I teach a little bit into some third year and fourth year um, courses around uh, lactation and endocrinology and rumen uh, cow stomach physiology. Um, I'd like to talk mostly about the animal science first year teaching. Um, and I find that most exciting and most frustrating. Um, Why? So I had taught previously at Auckland University in the School of Pharmacy, and that was my first university teaching engagement. Uh, teaching pharmacy students who were in a restricted entry course, you could only do pharmacy with uh, having gone through a process of applying your grades in an interview to even get into the first year. So 100 places per year, four-year program, I was mostly teaching third and fourth year pharmacy students, professionals, already professional people who had to highly achieve to get to the course. So, you know, I would get back to my office after a lecture and there'd already be a queue of more questions on my lecture and, and stuff like that. And then I went to an agricultural college um, where it's a general entry course, um, first year students. And I described the classes is divided into three. There's, there's a group of students who just need me to point them in the direction and they will go and they will achieve and uh, apply themselves and study and do far better than I ever did as an undergraduate. Then there's a group where we'll get there together We'll work on it. We'll keep talking about it. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll learn together and, and pass the course. Right. Then there's a group who I say are just there for the lifestyle. They're either there to experience university or they're there because, you know, their family expects them to be there, but they're not necessarily convinced that, you know, they're not actually quite sure if they will finish university, if it's the right course for them. So I wasn't prepared for a general entry course where there's going to be students who fail and there are going to be students who are worried about failing and want to pass and you can work with them. But then there's a group who just don't care. Um, 
<laughs> right. <laughs> and and so I know as teachers we're often told oh, you have to find a way to get through to them and what you have to accept as a teacher sometimes you can't get through to them. Um, sure. And getting through to them might not be the answer because helping them achieve in a course ultimately that they may never stick with. Um, so sometimes it's it's helping them realize this is not the course for them, that if they're not applying themselves and they're not trying to pass, then they'd be better off using that time applying it to a different course or a different career or, or whatever. But also um, letting them know that, yeah, they're going to fail the course. That's not a reflection on them. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's, not, it's, it's just sometimes it's just the, it, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't yeah. click. And then it's uh, you should one should know where to draw the line of pushing and helping the students. Yeah, I think that's a very yeah. important point that you raised. Uh, yeah, that's very very important. I can understand why you wanted to talk about this entry level undergraduate mammalian physiology rather than teaching the professionals because I'm sure that must have been super frustrating. Yeah, and, and senior year students, they've already got the lay of the land. They, they know how right. to be a university student, what's expected of them. It's the first year students who have come from high school right. and been taught in a certain way for four or five years right. and now go to university where a lot of it is self-directed. Um, sure. And and it's... And it's yeah, so... Um, but at the same time, that's incredibly exciting because you have the students who just totally engaged from day one and um, I have a big class so enrollment can be anywhere between 150 and 250 students depending on the year um, so in a, in a small class if there was 90 maybe sorry 90 20 or 30 it might, might be one or two who are really really struggling or might not even yeah. bother to turn up so you, you don't know about them but in a class of 150, the ones who are struggling or, or not applying themselves, you know who they are straight away. You can, you can spot them, just right. plot out them. <laughs> yeah, statistically, it's more, right? One out of 20 multiplied that by five is yeah. suddenly becoming five out of 100. Yeah. Uh, and anything you try to address that will find some success in a big class. There'll be a group of them where you try something new and they will click. Where if you have a small class, you try something new, but it still fails 100%. But that's just because there was only, say, three students. And right. where you try the same approach in a large class where there might be 30 students like that and 10 click. And you've got, you've helped that 10. So um, it's science. The bigger the numbers, the, the, the replication. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that's all part of the process. Absolutely. Mm. Um, uh, Craig, I, I hope your research experience so far, let's move a bit to the research experience now, has been wonderful so far and will continue to do so in the future as well. However, if you had three wishes to improve your research experience, uh, what would you ask for? And I'm not promising anything here. Yeah. Um, Funding. Gosh, it's difficult to apply for now. Um, you know, it used to be you wrote a, a letter explaining what you were going to do, and that was it. And now funding, 
applications run to 20, 30, 100, 200 pages and there's sections on business and impact and risk and alternate. And, and so not only are we scientists, we have to do a bit of economic modeling, we have to do a bit of marketing, future projection, um, not only prove we've already done it and can do it, but that if it doesn't work, we have a backup plan that'll be just as successful. Mm -hmm. um, so is there a way to actually remove the bureaucracy between the applicant and the funders? Because there's this whole body of bureaucracy now that never used to exist. Mm -hmm. um, do they really add value? Are they needed? Um, I worked for a government institute that vast majority of its funding was applied for externally, secured externally, mm -hmm. but from the government. Our funding model is even though you have government institutes, they have to apply for public funding. Right. Um, and that was the, this process of having to apply and the bureaucracy and the big applications was frustrating to the scientists. And then this government institute got a big bulk of what was called core funding, where it was no longer publicly contestable. The institute was able to decide how to spend it for research. Okay. But the scientists still had to go through the same sort of process that the external one was. Basically, the government institute took the external process and changed the letterhead. <laughs> so it made no difference to the scientists having to go through all this, this bureaucracy. So. Can there please be a way to, if not remove the bureaucracy, hide, protect the scientists from it? Um, that would that would be good. Um, I'd like better networking between scientists amongst scientists. It's amazing the number of times I've been away to a conference. You're having a conversation with somebody, you realise you know somebody in common. But then one of them, somebody, you point out, oh, you should be working with so-and-so on such-and-such. And you go, are they doing that? And they go, yeah, yeah, didn't you know? And I go, no, they're down the corridor from me. Why did I know this? You know, So uh, scientists are really bad at telling others what they're doing and what they can do. And we, we stand behind our capability. We stand behind our data. Um, but we, we need to somehow step out in front of it more often. Um, that's a double-edged sword, though, because we could be over-promising, over-delivering, and, and not aware of our limitations. So, you know, um, but and and now we have all the platforms, the the LinkedIn, and using Twitter professionally, uh, professionally or socially, and every um, conference seems to have a different app to then work out what sessions you're going to go to, and you know how many different places are there now to register a profile as a scientist all so yeah. you know um, yet it's it's still difficult to find who's doing what and who's capable of what so um, better networking because networking still takes a lot of effort and a long time it, the process hasn't been streamlined um, we just have different ways of recording business cards um, and then the publishing uh, process. Oh, please. Um, you know, it's, it's so frustrating that you have a, a journal requires you to format it to such and such before you 
instantly rejected by the editor and it's just like well if you told me that three weeks ago i wouldn't have and then you've got to reformat for the next journal you know is that really really needed and it and it's not um because reviewers aren't looking necessarily is it formatted according to the journal's guidelines we're often asked that but really it's 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 irrelevant and you know it, we should be able to submit in any format we want and if we do a bad job it should be on us if we've submitted something that is can't be read its structure is a nightmare the referencing is yeah um and and it's instantly rejected because of that well that's fine i should put the effort into presenting it in a way that is that is readable but not to fit the general requirements yes it's rejected um then i can just submit to the next one i could submit to the next one and the next one um so i know amongst scientists that's you know that's right under the frustration of reviewer two it's having to reformat for another journal <laughs> I'd, I'd wish the, the need to format to go away um and uh I, i'm tied up with that i'm i'm not entirely convinced the pay thousands of dollars for open access is a better model than the paywall because you've just moved the wall um, and created a barrier for many scientists against open access publishing. So the institutes who could pay to get behind the paywalls, the institutes who can pay for open access still get their information out there one way or the other. Mm -hmm. The institutes who couldn't pay to get behind the paywall can no more pay for open access. So their, their, their results, their, their work is still hidden somewhere. Um, so I'm not convinced that the open access pay model at the moment is the right one. Um, so I've, I've a wish there then not for a solution or, but I've a wish there that, that a bit more effort was being put in that the pay for open access is going to free up science. It's not, it's still going to lock away a lot of science, particularly you may have a project with a student who's got some great work you want to publish, but it has to go behind a paywall because where are you going to find the extra few thousand for open access? Um, not every researcher has access to that money, nor should they need to. <laughs> we have to add another budget line in our funding application, which just means something else Two has to be reduced. In the funding yeah. Uh, proposal. Yeah, 102 yeah. pages instead of 100 pages now for the funding. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all three of your wishes are absolutely uh, fair, and I wish I could change that. Uh, I wish I could just do it with a snap of my fingers. But I would <laughs> like to believe that uh, we as a community, a scientific community, we're working towards achieving that. Um, and going towards more fairer, uh, less amount of bureaucracy and different structures of funding. Um, and uh, yeah, basically making really open access, opening the access to all kinds of research work, not just mm. the ones where the, the institutions have the money to pay for it. I, I completely, um, yeah, it resonates, absolutely. I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of researchers as well. So very, very important points that you brought up also with the networking, very, very important points. Um, speaking of future, um, what are you most looking forward to in the next three months? This COVID epidemic to be well under control, if not eradicated. Mm -hmm. 
that's in everybody's mind at the moment. Um, uh, but um, some good things will come out of this. Um, maybe not as big as we would hope in terms of social changes. Um, and we're human, we'll fall back to our old habits. So I think the air pollution will come back, the water pollution will come back, the noise in the cities, that, that will come back. But it has been a crash course um, in truly working from home, not just going home because it's in quiet to do some marketing. No, truly working from home for, for many of us who occasionally would say, I'm working from home, but you weren't you. And, and we're now experiencing what it's like for those who, before this, were successfully working from home who had done that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm hoping uh, that coming out of this, that the new skills I've acquired and the new tools for working from home, I can maintain those. Um, and so I'm finding now I have a far better routine to my day than I, I do at my workplace. Um, nobody's popping into my office with a quick question. <laughs> that, there's a downside to that. Um, the email spam has dropped off amazingly. I think some internet cafes in some part of the world are, up, world are obviously closed and, and the spammers aren't as active as they have been. Uh, so um, what gets through the spam filters is nowhere near as much as I've had in the past. So emails have quietened down. That's, um, that's good. But using uh, Zoom and MS Teams and software and coordinate and sharing folders and files far more efficiently um, than in, in the past and just the learning curve from where I was two weeks ago to where I am now, mm -hmm. you know, we, we so many of us know how to change the backgrounds and, 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 and things like that, but just being able to set up a meeting and, and knowing um, what's the advantages of Zoom versus Skype for Business versus MS Teams, uh, the difference between just shared folders or SharePoint sites and things like that, and right. finding that's actually improving um, how I certainly work with my team. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting, yeah. interesting, very interesting. So I want to maintain a lot of that. Um, besides the, the decor and the heating and the IT support in my home office is far better than at work. So. I have to say that because I'm the IT support here, so. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> no bias, no, no bias there. No, no bias. Absolutely. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's wonderful. And before we let you go, Craig, what we want to understand from you is what are the big challenges uh, faced by the field of materials or nanoscience? Are the big questions that the scientific community is working towards solving? Other than the vaccine for COVID-19. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, one of the biggest challenges, I think, outside of the laboratory for nanomaterials is their true environmental fate. It's not just that is this chemical used to make a nanofiber present in the environment. It's where is it actually going? It might be stuck on a granule but then gets engulfed by some microbe and partially enzymatically degraded and then bits of it go elsewhere. And we can track the chemicals but we can't necessarily track what they've gone through. Right. And, and we know that if we look at a paddock, most of the biomass is under the grass. There might even be cows there, but under the grass, there's the worms and the invertebr other invertebrates and microbes and the diversity there is just like staggering. 
Uh, if you physically put it on a scale, what's under the ground is enormous compared to what's above the ground. And we know chemically what might go in and we might know the chemical fate of materials, but we don't know what organisms they're going through. We might be able to get an idea that some genes there are responding in a certain way that maybe have something to do with what we put on, may, maybe not. Um, maybe because the wind changed direction and dried the paddock out, and, you know. Um, so, so that's, that's a real difficult challenge to understand nanomaterials and ultimately the fate of any material um, we as humans produce. We could start off with the biggest thing, but if it erodes, eventually it's probably going to turn into some sort of nano presence. Um, and then there is still the struggle to get research translated to industry. Um, from the research lab and industry, you've got two bodies who work at different speeds with different priorities. There's always the idea of, well, if you have a student based in industry for part of their studies or scientists are content to cost them, that's going to help. I think that helps identify the differences and the struggles to communicate, but, but I don't necessarily feel uh, confident that it improves the ability to translate research into, into industry. And there are so many different models um, in the world that you could try this and try that. Um, it still um, comes down to a lot of luck, right people at the right place, at the right time, the right need. Um, a lot of the time you see th things literally reinvented because others weren't aware that this bit of research was done prior to things being scanned and put into Google. You know, still sitting in a library somewhere. Um, so there's, there's still that struggle as well. And, and that's an inefficiency in the way we as humans spend our money to do research and, and then make the research of use. No research is wasted. Um, every bit of research has a use, even if it is just to train the researcher to be a better researcher. And that applies humanities, art, science, engineering, maths, technology, the whole lot. No research is wasted. Um, but research is lost and forgotten and not realized what it can be used for or what it means and things like that. So translating it not just to industry, but translating to it into, into a way society can use it and access it and gain from it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then we have to guard against the misuse of science, the misappropriation of science. And yeah. as, as we get science into industry and products better, it'll get misused even, even more. So. That's a lot of challenges. So there's still a lot of work to do for the researchers and the scientists. A lot of challenges and questions to be answered. Well, um, isn't it frustrating when, when some politicians and bureaucrats sometimes say, oh, we don't need to fund this field of research anymore. It's already all been done. <laughs> no, it's never done. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I share that frustration, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Let's, uh, let's not go there, but uh, I hope we are working towards uh, solving these problems and keeping sane, keeping our moral compass mm. in the right direction when uh, translating the research from the lab to the, the market, to the lab bench to the market. So um, I hope we are working towards it. Uh, on that positive note, uh, thank you, Craig, for speaking with thank us. Uh, this has been wonderful. And uh, we are excited to have you on Real Scientist Nano. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to it. Wonderful.
for listening. To know more about us, please visit our website realscientistsnano.org and follow us on Twitter at realsci_nano. underscore nano.